Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Isabel Bermecki, a fashion model and the world's first nuclear power influencer. We chat about why nuclear power should probably be playing a very important role in decarbonizing the world. So it's clean, as in emissions-free, it's very space-efficient, it doesn't depend on the weather, and as you'll hear, it's really surprisingly safe. So when we think about how to phase out fossil fuels, which is obviously a huge task, it looks like nuclear should be in the mix in a big way. But nuclear energy also has a fairly bad reputation. Plus, these big infrastructure projects are not cheap, and so not only are very few new plants being built, but also perfectly functional plants are being decommissioned. So, as you'll hear, Isabel decided to use her platform on social media to do something about this bad reputation, and she started making videos explaining nuclear energy to a new audience and hopefully correcting some misinformation. And so far, it seems to be working. Uh, We also chat about improving how we deal with radioactive waste, uh, how the risks from nuclear stack up against fossil fuels, and also how nuclear energy could become cheaper by using smaller modular reactors. So that's the context, and we started by asking Isabel how she got into learning about science. Yeah, so to get to that question, I need to explain a little bit of my background. So I was born in a very small town in southern Brazil. It's close to the border with Uruguay. And, you know, when most people think of Brazil, they think of like the beach and Samba and the Amazon forest. But the south is very different. It's all farms. There are these vast green fields, crops, and just a bunch of cattle. Um, in the winter, it gets actually pretty cold. So it's it's definitely different than the Brazil people have in their imagination. Um, so I grew up there, very small town. Everyone is very Catholic in Brazil. I used to go to Catholic church every weekend with my grandmother. And I actually attended Catholic school up until I was like 12 years old. So like the most formative years of my education were in Catholic schools. And, you know, I believe that God created earth and, you know, he created all the animals and humans and the whole story in the Bible. And I remember having science lessons, but they almost always presented scientific theories and scientific information at the same level as creationism, um, which to the mind of a child, you know, you start believing what your teachers are saying. So I pretty much believe that whole story. Um, then fast forward a couple of years, I was about 17 years old. I got discovered to be a model, ended up moving to the United States And one day, by mistake, (laughs) I ended up reading a book by Richard Dawkins called The Greatest Show on Earth. And it's a whole book about evolution. And I remember this day exactly. I mean, I I looked at the book inside of a box. It was a beautiful cover, like covered with flowers. And I honestly just started reading it out of boredom. I had nothing else to read. And I said, okay, this book looks interesting. And I remember sitting there and just reading those pages and thinking to myself, how could I not have known any of this? Um, and just learning about evolution. And <laughs> and that triggered me to go on Amazon immediately and search for books that were similar to that one. So that really, that book really led me down a path of, you know, just passion for science and down a path of knowledge and discovery that 
has been extremely gratifying throughout the years. That's such a fantastic story. And I can empathize with a fair bit of it. Um, now, what came next? Did you find more books that ended up influencing you in the same way? I did. I actually, um, the next book I bought was called Our Inner Ape by a primatologist called Franz Zawal. And it's this really interesting book about um, primates, other primates, and how their behaviors are similar to humans. And it touches a little bit on evolutionary psychology, which is something that I got super interested after reading that book as well. I had always been interested in human behavior and psychology. And so when I combined evolution and psychology, it was like a dream come true. And that's another goosebump moment. I remember, you know, being in my bed and, and Googling. I actually Googled the words evolution, psychology, and I, I came across evolutionary psychology and went down that path a little bit. But just in general, the path of discovery and learning is so fascinating. You know, it's like this it's like whole new universes that you get to explore every time you stumble um, on a new subject. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, right? And I think the important thing for me, or the cool thing, is that the learning never ends. You'll never close a book and be like, yep, I've learned most of the things I was curious about, <laughs> and there's nothing more I care to know. Um, <laughs> it's just an endless journey, which is great. There is no end. It's, it's like a sad realization when you realize that there's so many interesting things in the world that you never learned about right but it's also gratifying because you know you'll never be bored yeah completely this is a tangent but david deutsch makes this point that there was maybe a time in history uh, a couple of millennia ago where you could really know all the important stuff discovered and written by other humans but from that point onwards it just was and is more or less impossible to know everything in that sense. Uh, and he has this kind of related thing about scientific progress and the reach of human knowledge, where I guess some people think there's maybe this kind of hard limit to scientific progress where you hit diminishing returns or something. But he's like, no, the reach of knowledge mm. is just boundless in this really mm. important sense, right. which I like. I actually tangent but i actually love david deutsch ah brilliant brilliant same <laughs> yeah i read i read his book of um his book the beginning of infinity it's amazing and it literally changed it literally changed my life and it 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 made me so much more optimistic about the future of our species yeah completely it did the same thing for me uh shout out to david deutsch um okay so we're going to talk about climate obviously but since we are also talking about your story and maybe the answer is just no here, but was there a sense in which growing up in Brazil influenced the way you now think about climate issues and I suppose energy poverty in particular? Yeah, so I, I grew up surrounded by nature. Um, my family has a you know beautiful property close to the city with like a big waterfall. We used to go there every weekend, ride horses, get food from the garden and like play with chickens. So since I was born, I had a very strong connection with nature, which makes me care a lot about preserving the environment. Um, on the other hand, I also have an appreciation for a high energy life. And that's probably precisely because I grew up in Brazil. You know, we didn't have things like a laundry machine or a dishwasher or air conditioning or central heating. And I, I think a lot of people fail to appreciate how important these objects are in our day-to-day -day life. Um, 
they, they can sound a little bit like luxury items, but in reality, they are some of the biggest contributors to human well-being and women's empowerment. So, you know, laundry machines and dishwashers gave women more time to dedicate to their studies and career. And heating and air conditioning make people feel comfortable and, and in some cases can even be life-saving. So, you know, I have low blood pressure. So remember always feeling lightheaded and exhausted all summer and not being able to sleep because of the heat. So these are all things that have serious impact in, in people's well-being. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I mean, it's obviously still the case in many parts of the world and maybe more so the case over a lot of history where people just spent almost all their time and uh, especially women, obviously, doing things that we would take for granted that machines do. As in we people who own dishwashers and washing machines. Um, but, you know, technologies like the internet and stuff are a bit shinier and more exciting. And so maybe this point just ends up getting really underrated. And, and now people think about it. Now people have free time to fight on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Hashtag progress. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about climate change in general. And we should just lay out some of the problems, first of all. So maybe a place to start is to hear a bit about the breakdown of how much energy is being used to do different things globally. Like when I think of what kinds of things use energy, I have a vague picture of, you know, cars being in there and like electrical appliances and factories. But can you say something about how that all stacks up? So right now, the global energy consumption is 173,340 terawatt hours. And one terawatt hour is equal one trillion watt hours. So that's just a lot, <laughs> a lot of energy. And energy is consumed by all different sectors, you know, primarily transportation globally. So that's things like like cars, ships, planes, whatever mode of transportation that, that uses energy. And then we have electricity, meaning using this primary energy to create electricity to power our homes and offices and buildings and appliances and all of that. And then we have industry, uh, which is manufacturing facilities and making stuff, basically making steel, cement. And then finally we have agriculture, which is which is the last component. It's kind of hard to come across all the numbers and, and different sources will tell you different things, but those are in order. So meaning transportation uses the most energy and then we have electricity industry and so on. But yeah, it's just it's just a massive, massive problem that touches on every single thing we do as humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe this is stating the obvious, but presumably there's nothing wrong in itself with expending energy. So what exactly is the problem with where we're getting that energy from? Yes, well, the problem right now is that we're getting our energy from fossil fuels mostly. Um, still 84% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. And that's things like coal, natural gas, and um, oil. And of course, as we now know, burning fossil fuels um, not only causes air pollution, which already claims lots of lives every single year, but it also um, increases the average global temperature and is causing a bunch of other problems. And we call that climate change. So yeah, exactly like you said, the problem is not how much energy we're using is where we're getting that energy from. And right now it's mostly from, from fossil fuels, which cause climate change. 
Yeah, fantastic. And now looking forward to how we get out of this mess, um, there's this idea that there are really two broad stages here. There's electrifying and there's decarbonizing. Could you just explain what both those things mean? So I talked a little bit about, you know, climate change and, the, and all the different sectors that use a lot of energy. And electricity is a secondary form of energy, meaning it doesn't exist in nature. We have to use another primary source to create it. And those primary sources can be things like the sun, the wind, hydro, or, you know, splitting atoms like nuclear power. And so, so when people say we have to electrify, we just mean that we have to make everything that we can electric. So instead of using gasoline-powered cars, we should use electric cars, um, electric buses. Same for heating. Instead of using natural gas to heat our homes, we should use electric heaters. So we just need to get most of our things to be powered by electricity instead of coal, oil, or gas directly. But then, of course, we need the most important step, which is to decarbonize um, which is just to make sure that all of that electricity now comes from clean sources. So again, these are sun, wind, hydro, nuclear, and geothermal. There, there are some more, but these are like the main ones. So that's what people mean when they, when they say electrify and decarbonize. There's also huge gains you can get from electrification itself, right? Which is that these processes are often a lot more efficient. So I think one of the classic examples is kind of looking at electric cars versus uh, diesel cars, which precisely use, right? Um, electric cars use this secondary electricity energy, whilst um, diesel cars use, use primary energy. But a lot of energy just gets lost because through the internal combustion engine, you have heat, you have sound, you have all of these kinds of sorts of inefficiencies, which also means that um, you can actually get in some situations a lot more bang for your buck if you electrify. Um, so it's not just clean energy. Um, it's also that you need a lot less of it to basically be doing the same things. Right, exactly. It's just it's just better technologies all, all around. Yeah. Also, one crazy thing I learned from the new Bill Gates book was that if you look at fuel efficiency for cars over time, it's improved, sure, but only by a little bit over like the last 50 years and nothing like you know, Moore's law for computer chips or something. And then if you look at battery price and capacity and efficiency for electric cars, they're improving so much faster and they're not obviously slowing down. I wonder I wonder if it's a physical limitation or if it's just that they're efficient enough so people don't need them to be more efficient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a really good point, actually. And I think it might be something we, we hit on later as well when we talk about uh, like coal prices, right? Versus nuclear prices and, and the like, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Let's put a flag there for sure. Um, but okay, so that's the problem. And we've got this very bird's eye picture of the way forward. But like you said, there are lots of different alternatives to burning fossil fuels to get useful energy, right? There's hydro and solar and wind and geothermal, the whole gang. But we're obviously going to focus on nuclear power, right? So can you just tell the story of how you started learning about nuclear power and also how you realized it was something potentially important to lend your voice to? Hmm. So nuclear energy first came to my attention to, through Carolyn Porco. She is a planetary scientist who worked at NASA for many, many years. Um, so back in 2015 and 2016, she tweeted a couple of times about molten salt thorium reactors and how they were this incredible technology that were much better than you know, current nuclear power plants and so on. And I remember being super curious about it. Um, but at the time, 
I didn't have the knowledge necessary to learn about molten salt thorium reactors. It was kind of like this obscure technology. It was really hard to find easy to digest information online. But from that moment on, I remember every time I met a scientist or someone who thought about climate change, um, I asked them about nuclear power. And the responses always seemed to be something like, oh yeah, nuclear is actually pretty good and we're actually gonna need it to solve climate change, but the public perception is terrible. So behind closed doors, everybody seemed to agree that we needed nuclear power and that it was actually much safer than people thought. But nobody felt like they could they could voice their opinions publicly because of you know the bad reputation that comes with the technology. So that's when I re- I, I started to realize that in order to build more nuclear power plants and you know ultimately avoid a climate disaster, we would need a radical shift in how people perceive nuclear energy. And and as I started learning about nuclear power in general, I realized how much of this negative perception was actually created by misinformation and the availability heuristic, this tendency to to overestimate the the risk of something happening just based on how many examples you can think about. So, you know, airplane crashes come to mind. And I think it's very similar to nuclear power in that you've had, you know, this couple, handful of accidents that were very catastrophic, but compared to fossil fuels are still much safer, and but people tend to remember those events instead of focusing on the everyday wins of you know how many clean electricity and nuclear reactors have been creating for decades now. So I just saw that there was space for someone like me who doesn't come from academia or the science community to help clear out some of this misinformation and, and just spread the message in a fun and visually interesting and unusual way. Okay, awesome. There is so much there. Um, So one thing to talk about is just what is the case for nuclear, given that I imagine some people listening will associate nuclear power with some pretty dodgy things. And then there's this question of, given that there is a strong case for more nuclear power, where did its very poor reputation come from? Um, But okay, let's start with the positive case for nuclear power and all of its upsides. Um... So could you maybe say something, first of all, about just how fission works and also something about what advantages it might have over solar and wind, for instance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so nuclear power is different than solar and wind in that it uses fuel to create electricity, um, right? So solar panels are just literally capturing the sun's energy and converting that into electricity. And wind turbines are capturing the wind's energy and converting that into electricity. And nuclear actually uses fuel, so it's a thermal power plant, um, similar to coal and and gas power plants in that that it uses heat to create electricity. And the difference there is that coal and gas power plants burn coal and gas, respectively, um, to, to heat water. It's basically just like a fancy tea kettle. You're just heat, literally heating water to create steam to spin a turbine. And the difference with between coal and gas and nuclear is that nuclear uses the splitting of atoms to create energy, to heat water, to, to spin a turbine. So nuclear energy, because it's not burning anything, is carbon-free. It doesn't have any emissions. Um, that's why it's considered a clean source of energy. And you know, one of, I mean, now for to making to make the case for nuclear energy, 
I think that the biggest advantage that fission has over other sources of energy is really how dense it is. Um, and nuclear is the only source of clean energy that's reliable, meaning you can create electricity 24-7 independently of the weather. And that can be built pretty much anywhere. And like I said, because of the density of uranium, we can create a huge amount of energy in smaller spaces and using way less materials, which is you know, good news for the environment overall. One thing I want to pick up on on there then is um, on some of the, I guess, contrasts, as, as you mentioned, to solar energy and, and wind power. So you pointed out exactly right that, um, you know, there's this huge intermittency problem, which um, renewable energies have um, in that they're not very reliable and they're often only available where it is very sunny or it is very windy. But some people might say, okay, those are limitations, but, you know, we can try and overcome those. Um, Finn mentioned how there's these big developments in in battery storage. Um, You can also talk about just making energy grids in general more uh, interconnecting. So if energy is produced on the coast, it can go into the mainland. What would kind of be the case of investing in nuclear energy to complement like solar and, and wind as opposed to just going all in on solar and wind and just trying to fix the problems that it has? Well, because we don't know for a fact that it, that those solutions will work. Um, like there's theories that they might work, but we, we haven't done that, right? And I think we're talking about avoiding a climate a climate disaster and, and decarbonizing as soon as possible and doing so by you know 2050 and, and things like that. I think it's too much of a risk to to try and bet on a technology that has not been proven to to work to that level. I think that renewables are great for what they are. We start running into all sorts of problems when we start forcing them to become something that they're not, um, meaning a a firm source of energy, a a reliable source of energy. Um, And I don't think there is anyone who actually proposes doing wind and solar only. I think batteries are always a part of the equation. And then with batteries, it's... It's, of course, extremely expensive. So, you know, there is a a study that came out recently um, talking about California's decarbonization, path to decarbonization, and they analyzed all these different scenarios and already decarbonizing with solar, wind and batteries is more expensive than decarbonizing with, with solar, wind and something like nuclear, even considering like the most expensive type of nuclear. And then there's also all these other issues of like how many batteries we would need in order to to provide that grid balance. And does it even make sense to build that many batteries to sit there for, you know, a big majority of the year and then just kick in whenever there is, you know, a period of low winds or a period of low sun and then replace these batteries every 10 years. So I think there is a lot of there's a lot of unknowns and and there's a lot of other things that we need to consider um, before just jumping in on this, you know, let's go 100% solar, wind and batteries route. But equally, just to be clear, you're not saying that we should go the other way and go 100% nuclear, right? Not at all. Like, clearly, nuclear is not going to solve every problem under the sun. But the idea is that it's underrated and should play a really important role. Um, but it obviously makes sense to have some balance of everything. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I don't even understand people who make the argument that we need this one solution. I think it's a little bit religious almost. You know, you need this one thing and it's going to solve all of our problems. It's not. Again, the challenge is huge. The challenge of decarbonizing our energy system is giant. We need to deploy 
an insane amount of clean energy in the next few decades. And we need all of it. And and right now, renewables are cheaper. And so I fully support deploying them as much as we can right now. But th- there seems to be consensus that we need something like nuclear. And I say something like nuclear because we need some some form of firm clean energy. And that could be things like hydro, geothermal, and nuclear. So hydro, as you know, is geographically limited. You cannot build a dam in the middle of the country uh, where there is no water and elevation. And geothermal thus far has also been geographically dependent. There's now a lot of breakthroughs in geothermal technology. And we can get into details here, but there's a lot of really exciting things happening in geothermal. But again, this is still kind of far away. It's just the beginning of this this journey. And then in the nuclear, which we already have, we've already built a lot of these plants and we've had them around forever. And we know that they're very effective at decarbonizing the energy. We, we've done it before, um, right? When you look at countries like France and Sweden, they have deployed a very large amount of, of clean energy and significantly decreased their emissions. And it was all nuclear energy. We, we've already done it. So we, why not just repeat what has been done in the past instead of batting in this you know, obscure and, and theoretical technologies? A funny thing, I think that's kind of worth noting that the reason why France's like share of renewable energies is so high isn't actually much to do with like the environmental concern. It's actually that back in the 70s, they just didn't have um, a lot of coal or kind of fossil fuels to use, which meant that when the oil shocks happened and you couldn't rely on getting cheap oil from the Middle East, France basically went almost kind of all in on nuclear energy. And that's really paying off now when you kind of realize that it is actually really good to have these uh, non-carbon emitting sources of energy. But that, um, interestingly enough, didn't really come from an environmental concern, but much more from like a, an economical one, actually. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that a lot of countries that developed their te- their nuclear power plants back in the day were were not focused on the environment and were focused on just energy independence and, and other things like that. Um, but yes, it's t- totally paying off. I mean, France has 70% of their electricity come from nuclear and they have consistently one of the cleanest electricities in Europe and one of the cheapest as well. So they export a lot of electricity to other countries, including Germany, <laughs> who phased out of their, their nuclear plants or is phasing out of their nuclear plants and ironically imports electricity from France. So so say something about what's happening in Germany and these other countries where plants are literally being shut down and there's certainly no plans for building new ones. Now, if you've said there's an expert consensus for pushing in the direction of nuclear power, what's going on there? So famously, Germany decided, decided to phase out of nuclear after the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. And we know now, looking back, that after they closed a bunch of their nuclear power plants, their reliance on coal increased, and so did their emissions for the years following the shutdown of, of plants. And now, because of their investment in renewable energy and, and deployment of that technology, they've finally lowered their emissions. But we know that shutting down nuclear power plants always increases emissions. And, and I think that Germany, because it's such a powerful country in Europe, kind of influences the, the culture around. Um, so we see it all over now. We have Belgium um, announced last year they're closing all their nuclear plants by 2025. And I mean, they've publicly said that all of them will be replaced by natural gas. 
which sounds good, right? But just to be clear, natural gas is not good. <laughs> well, yes, natural gas, let's call it fracked methane. Um, yes, so it's, it might sound good, but it's, it's actually really bad. And especially when the global conversation right now is about climate change and about how we have, you know, this many decades to, to phase out of fossil fuels and to decarbonize. It just seems like taking steps backwards. And, you know, unfortunately, fossil fuels are cheap and they're easy and they're reliable. And so it's very easy for countries to fall back on them. Um, and we see that happening all over in the U.S. For example, we're shutting down five plants in the next five years. And these plants alone create more clean power than all of California's wind and solar combined. And California is one of the biggest you know, renewable states in the United States. And as I said before, you know, historically, whenever nuclear plants shut down, emissions increase. Um, so it looks a little bit depressing in these places, I'm not going to lie. But, you know, on the bright side, there are about 50 reactors currently being built in 16 different countries, um, most of them in China, India and Russia. And the UAE just this week started operating their first nuclear power plant, which alone will provide about 25% of the country's electricity. So there are things happening, just not in, in Europe and, and the United States. No, and um, I mean, you're definitely so right about the problems with replacing nuclear energy power plants with, with fossil fuels. I'm sure I'll go like on a rant in this in, in, in the writer, but like the big thing in Germany, right, is that after you kind of shut down, there's now deals with the Russian government about Nord Stream, which isn't just a problem because it encourages oil, but it's also dealing or those making Germany's energy security reliant on, on Russia, which they haven't had the, the best historical relations with. And it's just involving a huge amount of corruption. Uh, just very like blatant corruption as well of like politicians or former presidents of Germany just very clearly now being appointed the heads of these committees and being paid ridiculous amounts of salaries. It's really, really like a, a dirty business and one that I think I just get so angry with. Right, especially from a country that is, you know, claims to be the champion of of the environment. It's just, it doesn't add up. And, you know, the main arguments against nuclear power today are cost and time to build. So there basically are no good arguments to shutting down existing safe plants um, that could run for possibly 80 years, which is what they're getting licenses for now. So there really is no good argument for shutting existing plants and invariably they lead to higher emissions. So you, you mentioned these two um, like prominent um, kind of counter arguments you hear about nuclear energy, and I'd love to explore these in a bit more depth. So maybe to start off with the cost one, um, you mentioned that one of the big advantages that fossil fuels have is not just that they're reliable, but also that they're really cheap. And I think one of the things we've seen in America, especially, is that actually fracking is really undermining the the kind of market for, for nuclear energy. If you just kind of uh, have a very like liberalized energy market, as you saw in, in Texas and stuff, it's, it's really hard for nuclear energy to compete. Can you maybe explain a bit about why that is and, and what kind of solutions we might have to that? Yeah, so the, the, the interesting thing about nuclear power is that it's actually a huge upfront cost. But then the cost of the fuel itself is very cheap. Um, and part of it because uranium is not that expensive, but also because, again, the density of the fuel, which means that you need to use less to create more energy. Um, but the problem really is that upfront costs to, to build a nuclear power plant can cost something like $20 billion. And, and people look at gas and, and oil and all this existing technology already. It's existing infrastructure. All they have to do is just get more or build pipelines. Um, and also because in a lot of markets, and each state has a different um, regulation, but in a lot of markets, nuclear is not rewarded for being low carbon, while renewables are. 
And so you have that extra challenge added to it. Um, but I mean, the cost argument is one that I think is a little bit misguided because obviously we're not accounting for the real cost of fossil fuels um, and the cost they cause, you know, the damage they cause to the environment and all the, the costing the future of cleaning up this mess. And then there's also the fact that, yes, nuclear power plants are expensive to build, but once they're up, they can run for 80 years and then can create electricity for, in some cases, 3 million people in a single nuclear power plant. And there's also the fact that there's nothing intrinsic to nuclear power plants that makes them so expensive. So they're not made of diamonds. <laughs> they're made of, of steel and cement and normal things like that. So it's all about really figuring out how to decrease the cost, which, you know, this is a whole new topic on its own. But the problem mainly in countries like the United States is that, is that each one of these plants is one of a kind project. Right. So they build it once and then they take a break and then they build a different model in 10 years from now. So you don't you don't learn by repeating it and you don't get efficiencies of scale. You're just literally doing this one giant project at a time. And then there's a lot of a ton of like safety measures and, and regulatory issues that come with nuclear power. And a lot of those, I think, are great because they make nuclear actually safe Um they actually make nuclear one of the safest forms of energy. But some of those are are totally misguided and, and you know set up by irrational fears of radiation and irrational fears of nuclear power. So there's like obviously a lot of different things that contribute to the high cost, the high upfront cost of nuclear, but there are people trying to solve for that. So now you might have heard of small modular reactors. They're you know the whole vibe right now in nuclear energy. There are this new generation of reactors that are actually modular so the different parts are made in a factory they're going to be shipped in like the back of a truck and then just assembled on site so their hope is that by serializing these designs you can just decrease the costs now of course you know a point that i would like to make is that none of this has been built yet they're all still very much in exploration phase um, there are plans to build some in the next five years or so but we're we still have to see yeah I love this point that maybe one of the reasons nuclear is relatively costly nowadays compared to other renewables could just be because we've built too few plants to really learn from and we've invested relatively little in the R&D. And then maybe the reason for that is this kind of short-sighted, self-fulfilling thing where it's like, oh, these plants are too expensive to be economical to build now. Plus, they're presumably kind of scary as evidenced by all this strict regulation we've put up around them. And so they just stay costly. But the point is, the way you drive down costs is for there to be, you know, incentives to make the thing cheaper and then opportunities to keep making that thing. So yeah, if there's an upshot, it's that looking at present day prices is sometimes useful, but could actually mislead us when we're thinking about whether to invest in nuclear. Remember that this was the argument against renewables for decades, right? The argument against renewables for decades is that they were too expensive. And then people worked on reducing the costs, and there you go. Now we have renewables being cost competitive with fossil fuels even in some cases. So it's it's all about just building and, and repeating and trying these different trying these different technologies. But of course we cannot do that if the public perception is still really bad, which is <laughs> which is why I'm trying to to change it. As you mentioned, um, solar power has seen like huge improvements in learning by doing, but that I think is also in large part 
easier to do because they are kind of smaller units and you can tinker from generation to generation. Like one of the, I think, stronger arguments against nuclear energy is just because they have such a long lifespan that once you build a nuclear energy plant, they really last, as you said, for 80 years and you're kind of locked into that technology for that longer period. And I think they take almost 40 years to kind of pay themselves off. And that one of the, the risks you, you see is that if you think energy prices are going to keep falling, either in a good way because of um, solar energy improvements or in a bad way because of kind of fracking improvements, that um, you might kind of be, be left in the dust on like a longer time scale if you're still relying on technology kind of 40 years or even 80 years in the, in the past. I mean, that's, that's a good point. Um, just to touch back on the, on the cost of solar panels. Yes, of course, the cost has reduced dramatically. But the truth is you cannot decarbonize the system with solar panels only. So you have to account for the costs of all the other things that have to come with solar for you to be able to decarbonize your electricity system, right? So it's solar panels and then it's a bunch of transmission lines and it's a you know a super grid and then there's all the batteries. So while solar panels themselves are, are very cheap, all the structure around that you need to allow for solar panels to do any meaningful decarbonization or not. And and as I said, you know, are in fact already cost competitive with expensive nuclear. So that's kind of where I am with, with the with the cost arguments. Okay, I, I understand that the price of panels are, are themselves cheap, but you can't do that alone. No, I definitely agree. And you also have to kind of consider the fact that solar panels are only being used in kind of the most sunny areas at the moment, right? So even if you did try to replace um, through some ways kind of uh, all fossil fuels with, with solar energy, you're going to have to use them in kind of less efficient uh, areas at some point. And then that's going to uh, increase kind of cost somewhat. But um, that kind of feels like a like a different tangent. But just to kind of address some of the kind of common criticisms you you hear and to, to hear your response to them, Isabel, is um, the second point you mentioned about like time to build. And that feels very pertinent, especially from a climate change point. So you could say, look, we're in a climate crisis now. We need to get to a decarbonized energy system by 2050 at the latest. But nuclear power plants take an awful long time to build and they require a very intensive way to build as well. As you mentioned, kind of cement is used a, a ton there and cement is a, inherently a very kind of polluting material. There seems to be almost like a way that it might be really low carbon once we get onto this nuclear pathway, but just getting to there takes a long time and is, is just very energy intensive. Can you maybe address some of, some of those concerns? Yeah, for sure. So the slow argument is a bit a bit interesting to me because, um, you know, people have this perception that it takes such a long time to build nuclear power plants. Um, so in, in fact, in Pakistan, just a couple of weeks ago, they finished building a reactor um, with the help from China. From you know, first day they started getting dirt off the ground to completing the reactor, it took them seven and a half years. Baraka, which is in the UAE, took um, ten years to build, and even Volgoin in Georgia, which is here in the United States, the only plant that's been built was started in 2013, and is is delayed, but it's probably going to take you know ten years to build or, or so on. So ten years, yes, it it it's a lot of time. But if you consider that in this 10 years, you can deploy all the solar and wind that you want, it's not going to interfere with the build out of nuclear power plants. Just deploy all the renewable technology in the next 10, 15 years while building all these other nuclear power plants. And then by 2050, you can have, you know, a stable grid that is only with clean energy, but you have all these different technologies that complement one another. So... I don't think that 10 years is that is that big of a deal, considering that we need something like nuclear energy to provide that last, you know, 10 to 5% decarbonization in the grid. 
Um, and the other and the other thing is that again they last for eighty years, while solar panels and and wind turbines last between twenty five to thirty years. Uh, so we need to replace all of those, and we're going to need energy forever, right? We're not going to. It's not like we got twenty fifty, we decarbonize everything. Oh, we're not going to. We're not going to need any more energy. No, we're going to need energy forever. So, if we can have something that's reliable again reliable and that creates a huge amount of energy in a small space that is going to be there for 80 years, I think we should we should be investing in it. That's a great point. And it occurs to me that even if you expect global population to level off, you still shouldn't expect energy demand and consumption to level off, which is a good thing, incidentally, right? Because energy use is a pretty good indicator of development. So we're always going to need new solutions, more energy. And it makes sense to think quite long term because of that. Right, we're always going to need energy. And I think we should just assume that we will always need more energy. And and using more energy, like you said, Finn, is not the problem, right? It's actually, in fact, a good thing because a high energy life usually means a high quality life. Um, if you see, if you look at the countries that have the lowest energy consumption, they're also, you know, the countries with some of the lowest quality of lives. So what we really need to do is decouple energy consumption from fossil fuel usage from air pollution. And we can do that through these technologies. Let's dig in on this, actually. I was surprised by this also, that um, energy use is a really strong indicator of quality of life and development. And it's just a sign of things going well, aside from the massive externalities of the fact that you're burning fossil fuels typically to get the energy. But on this point, so there are some people who react to this climate crisis and say, look, we have this crisis because we have massively overconsumed and overproduced. And what is just critical, just central now, is to massively cut back on our energy usage. We need to consume far less. And at the more extreme end, there's this idea of returning to a kind of, you know, natural pre-civilizational state which is maybe attractive on the face of it, right? Um, so my question is, is there something wrong with that idea? The idea being focusing on cutting back as the solution? And is it possible to have, you know, an abundant society that doesn't just mean also more environmental damage and more tearing up the earth to, you know, make all the shit we don't need? <laughs> so I think there's definitely room for a better use of energy um, through things like efficiency, right? That alone would, would decrease our energy consumption by a little bit, but that alone won't decarbonize our energy system and avoid a climate crisis. And I think it's, a, again, as with everything, it's a combination of all things. Yes, let's reduce a little bit of our energy consumption, um, but yes, let's let's build clean clean energy technologies. And this idea of returning to a pre-civilizational natural state doesn't really resonate with me because I think most people who are saying that don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> nature, <laughs> you know, nature is beautiful, but it is also harsh. <laughs> Life pre-civilization was hardcore, you know, people died in like their 40s <laughs> and they didn't have access to, to healthcare and, and things that we have now precisely because of our energy consumption, right? Be precisely because our, our the industrial revolution has ignited all, all these other industries and, and have created amazing life-saving technology for humans. 
there's this great line you mentioned in another podcast you did, I think, uh, to the effect of nobody has ever lived in harmony with nature, but plenty of people have died in harmony with nature. (laughs) And that's the name of the game, right? It's just solving the problems imposed on us by nature. Exactly, exactly. There is no living in harmony with nature. There was just like struggling to survive. There was just like women having 10 kids for only one of them to actually survive and make it. So there has never been a moment and there there never will be a moment where everything will be peaceful. It's almost like the human game is problem solving. <laughs> like this is the video game we're in. We just have to solve a bunch of problems and and it seems that the more problems we solve, the the more complex they become and they just, you know, open up the door to all these other different problems that we now have to solve again and again and again. So this idea that oh, we just have to do this one thing and then everything will be great. I think it's a very, um, like, very human narrative. We, we think about that in our lives even, right? Even with things like consumerism. Oh, if I only buy this one pair of jeans, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> and it's, it's so not true. We're, we're constantly dealing with problems and issues. I kind of think as well that you see these two different visions of kind of environmentalism, right? The like more techno optimist version and then like the the kind of degrowth movement. And it always strikes to me as well that it kind of like looks at different ways that people can intervene. Like it's, it's very hard to help um, like encourage the energy transition. Um, like like on an individual level like I don't I mean correct me if I'm wrong here I don't really think there's many like kind of GoFundMes for like nuclear power stations it's just like much too large you might like change your own like energy tariff and and people do right to green tariffs but beyond that it's it's like a mostly kind of left up to to governments and and policymakers to decide whereas this degrowth thing is something that's like very individually accessible like you can turn off the light switch you can stop using plastic bags and you can try and like lower your own carbon footprint a lot easier through that way but just because it's easier to do on an individual level doesn't mean that it's like our collective solution right and in many ways it is like these more institutional levers that do encourage growth and do encourage increased energy uses just in a greener way um that are better solutions but they're just much harder to access like from an individual standpoint and at least that's what i feel that like a lot of people kind of identify with this degrowth movement more because it's more accessible to them and it's easier to visualize but it might not necessarily actually be the right way to do it yeah i think that individual action has does have a place and you know, we make fun of the plastic straws (laughs) because they don't actually have that big of an impact. But at the end of the day, I think they started a conversation around plastics. Yeah. And and now we talk about plastics in the ocean and, you know, there is more of an awareness of this problem. And I think that triggers then people to find solutions and better solutions. So I think there is definitely a place for that, but unfortunately that alone won't solve the problem that we're facing right now. And I think that a lot of this philosophy of, of degrowth, one of the things that bothers me the most is that, it, is that it usually comes from people in wealthy nations. It comes from people who have all the privilege of a high energy life, but who now look at the world and say, well, you know, we kind of have used too many resources. We've burned a little bit too much fossil fuels. We, we have to stop. But what they don't understand and what they fail to see is that there is billions of people in the world who don't have the quality of life that they do and that deserve it as much as they do, right? Like one of the most cruel things is inequality around the world and the fact that some people, just because of the place they were born into, will have a miserable existence and will not have access to, to a high quality of life. 
and and so I I really have an issue with people who enjoy the privileges of a high energy life telling other people who were born into poverty and who and who experience energy poverty that they that they cannot have those things because you know they kind of already used it too much. Um, I have a real issue with that. Yeah, I have absolutely nothing to add and I feel kind of terrible for cutting this tangent off now. Um, but let's keep talking about nuclear and let's address this kind of mutant elephant in the room, which is the risks, the dangers of nuclear power. Now, obviously, we have some fairly well-known disasters from living history involving nuclear power. And because of them, presumably, when most people think of nuclear energy, they're going to think of green glowing radioactive stuff and generally have this very aversive reaction. So I guess I have loads of questions. Uh, one is, well, how dangerous is nuclear power in fact? So do we have a good idea of how many deaths these disasters cause, for instance? And also, do we have some way of comparing the dangers and harms of nuclear power with other sources of energy? Yeah, so you know, maybe I can talk a little bit about why nuclear energy has this bad reputation. Um, and I think it's because it's hard to disentangle the birth of nuclear energy from nuclear weapons. Um, unfortunately, fission was discovered in 1938, which is just really bad timing. Um, so the first time the world was introduced to nuclear was through bombs testing and then the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which are all really, really dark stains in the history of humankind. So that already obviously makes people wary of the technology and, and rightly so, right? If you're if your association is with bombs, of course you wouldn't want that. Um, and then in 1955, the first nuclear power plant started making electricity. And in the 70s, people already started being anxious around nuclear power and it was mostly due to fear of nuclear war at the time. So a lot of the environmental movement started actually as anti-nuclear war. And then once that fear kind of faded away, it, it was a natural move to merge into anti-nuclear energy. And then in 79, this movie called China Syndrome came out, which is about a nuclear reactor meltdown. And a couple of months after the movie comes out, a partial meltdown happens at the Three Mile Island power plant in Pennsylvania. So, you know, public perception is already not great because this movie comes out and then, boom, this partial meltdown happens, which just confirms people's people's biases that the technology is dangerous. Um, so the meltdown didn't actually kill anyone and there were no adverse health effects caused by the radiation, but that really raised concerns and, and the anti-nuclear movement gained a lot of strength. And then in 86, you have the meltdown at Chernobyl power plant, which was you know a true disaster. Fast forward to 2011, the Fukushima Daiichi power plant had a meltdown after a massive earthquake and tsunami. So all of this sounds terrible, right? <laughs> it's like, oh my God, all these accidents. There's like three major disasters that culminated in evacuation, deaths and suffering. Like, this is terrible. But how does it actually compare with other forms of energy production? Well, like I said before, 84% of the world's energy still comes from fossil fuels. And burning fossil fuels causes climate change, as we know, but it also causes air pollution. And it's estimated that at least 5 million people die every single year from air pollution, from air pollution-caused diseases. So for nuclear power, the numbers are a little muddy and like hard to confirm. 
But according to the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Radiation, so far, 51 people have died from radiation exposure from Chernobyl. Um, and that includes the first responders that were there you know, when, when the meltdown ha happened. While Fukushima has only one confirmed death from radiation exposure, and that's a little bit contested because they don't know. The, the worker died recently, like a couple of years ago, and he was, he was a worker at the power plant. So these numbers, I, I want to be clear that these numbers might change and the estimates vary. And, and I also want to you know, be mindful that it's not only about deaths. Um, there's a lot of suffering that comes with a disaster like that, with things like evacuation processes. And in the case of Fukushima, um, there were around 3,000 deaths that happened because of the evacuation. So they were not related to radiation exposure, but just because these were people who needed you know, ventilators or whatever, people who are older and were evacuated in, in a rush and just ended up dying. Um, and just the suffering of being displaced. But even considering all of that, you know, this number is still pale in comparison to the number of deaths and other problems caused by burning fossil fuels. And even, even when compared to hydropower, nuclear is still safer. So in 1963 in Italy, a dam failed and killed around 1,900 people. And most famously, in 1975, a dam in China collapsed and it killed 85,000 people from, from the flooding. And then you have another one in India in 79 that claimed, you know, anywhere between 1,800 to 25,000 people. And there are more accidents like that. So, you know, when compared to these other forms of technology, nuclear is actually pretty safe. Um, and then in, in the case of renewables, I don't like to <laughs> I don't like to talk about the data there because it's a little bit sketchy. It's like people who fell from a solar panel, you know, <laughs> or like who jumped off a wind turbine and it's like, mm, I don't know if I trust that data. But it also another thing to consider is that renewables make up a very small share of the world's energy. Um, while hydropower is the largest source of clean energy and, and nuclear is the second largest. So as we as we see more and more renewables being deployed, we might see things happening. Although I doubt that, it, that they will be to the level of you know a hydropower dam collapse or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And one thing you mentioned earlier as an explanation for these you know skewed attitudes toward the risks from nuclear was the availability heuristic, right? And uh, just to say it back, so the idea is that if you give people a a list of ways they can die and ask them to estimate the relative risks. They're going to say that, you know, the risk of dying from a respiratory disease is maybe less than it is. And that the risk of dying from, uh, for instance, a terrorist attack or a shark attack or a plane crash um, are all much higher than they in fact are. Because it's just much easier to bring to mind examples of reading about those things in the news. And the thought here is that well, all three of the nuclear disasters you mentioned were very prominent in the news and continue to loom large in popular culture. Um, I have in mind a certain HBO miniseries, for instance, and probably like Homer Simpson is maybe not the best ambassador for nuclear safety. But you mentioned these hydropower disasters, which I had no idea about. Why doesn't the same thing apply to them? Why aren't people like, oh my God, hydropower, way too dangerous? Is there something special about nuclear here? Yeah, so I've tried to figure out this before, and I think it's special. Um, it's the fact that it's this thing that can literally kill you if you get too much of it in a short period of time. 
and can cause cancer if you get, um, you know, a moderately high amount of it in a certain amount of time. But yeah, people don't don't never bring up this this hydropower collapses and, and failures. And in fact, they've like I said, they've killed many many more people than nuclear disasters have. And and the other thing is that it's not as sexy, <laughs> you know, for a newspaper to report hydropower then fail. It's like meh, nobody cares. Now a nuclear reactor meltdown. That's some juicy stuff. And I think a lot of it is because of again pop culture is because we've been conditioned since very little that uh, this is what villains do. You know they get plutonium to make bombs. And I, I think it's just much more interesting um, for a headline. And even now, I mean, it's last March was the 10 year anniversary of Fukushima, and a lot of newspapers actually reported the anniversary by implying that, you know, 16 to 19,000 people died. Um, and the way they made their headlines made it seem like they were, they were talking about the nuclear meltdown. When in fact, you know, all of those deaths were caused by, by the earthquake and the tsunami, and then also, also the evacuation, but they never clarify that, you know, only one person have died from, from radiation exposure. So, they keep feeding into this this fear, which keeps making it kind of, you know, a more bizarre technology than it, it really is. So I definitely want to put a flag in, in touching on like this larger story of, of kind of villains and, and plutonium and, and the like. But one thing I wanted to ask about before that is you mentioned this kind of danger of uh, radiation. And the way we've kind of been talking about nuclear energy at the moment is this risk of uh, kind of a nuclear uh, core meltdown or reactor core meltdown uh, and th this big disaster uh, happening uh, all of a sudden and right now. But one of the other ways that people are worried about radiation are the kind of longer term effects. When you uh, use nuclear energy, there's, there's some waste being produced. And um, by some accounts, this waste will last for 10,000 uh, years. And we don't really have an idea of, of what that might look like in this uh, incredibly long time scale, what the, the world would look like. And I guess there's concerns that this uh, waste can leak and can cause all sorts of uh, problems. Um, and that definitely is something you, you kind of hear in the discussion as well. Can, can you address uh, that, that point at all? Yeah. So, you know, I think that's one of the downsides of nuclear energy is that it actually creates waste. Um, where some other forms of energy don't, like solar, wind, and, and hydro. Although they, you know, they all create different sorts of problems, <laughs> but but not waste. Um, and then the question I always go back to is like, okay, so we have this problem of having extremely radioactive waste. How does it compare to what we have now? <laughs> and and the truth is, you know, fossil fuel waste is, again, causing climate change and, and polluting our environment. Whereas nuclear energy waste, actually, because it is so radioactive that, you know, people can die if they touched it. Um, the nuclear energy industry is the only energy generating industry that actually is responsible for disposing of their waste. Um, so when you, you know, when you go to a nuclear power plant, you... If you went into the core, which is not advisable, um, <laughs> but you would see, you know, the fill is this tiny ceramic pellets called uranium pellets, and they're roughly the size of a gummy bear. Um, and inside of the core, you have all these tiny ceramic pellets, which are the thing that, you know, fission and then create creates heat and 
make steam to spin the turbine and whatever. So once after like four years or so after they've been used to create electricity, they come out as nuclear waste. Now, one thing that I always like to talk about is that nuclear waste, nuclear energy waste, which is different from nuclear weapons waste, but nuclear energy waste is actually solid. So a lot of people think it's liquid. It's like this green goo, like coming coming out of a, a barrel or something. So it's just the same ceramic pellets that went into the reactor come out as waste, what we also call spent fuel. Um, so once they came out of the reactor, they're extremely radioactive and physically hot. So you have to put them inside of a, like a literal pool, a water pool to cool for a couple of years because um, they keep they keep getting hot from decay heat. So after they come out of the pool, they put them in this giant concrete and metal casks and just drain all the water from the inside and then they shut it down and they literally just put it in like the nuclear power plant's parking lot, especially in the United States because we don't have a permanent um, a permanent disposal site for nuclear energy waste yet. Now, some things that I would like to clarify. Um, again, it's solid, it's not liquid, so it's not like gooing, you know, oozing everywhere. Um, the other thing is that nuclear waste is actually still 94% usable fuel. So some countries already recycle their nuclear waste and reuse it to power nuclear power plants again. And then they get rid of that 4%, which is like a tiny amount. In one of these big concrete casks, you can fit about 3,000 people's life's worth of electricity, um, which is just a lot. And then if you reprocess that, you would get an even smaller amount of waste that you really have to get rid of. And, and the other thing I always like to talk about is that we once had a natural nuclear reactor on Earth. Um, it was in Gabon. It was called Oklo. And it just so happened that this cave had all of the magic ingredients to create a nuclear power plant. <laughs> and it did. Engineers think that it, it actually created energy for, for a long time. Um, not like an insane amount of energy, but it did. So the other thing that we can observe is that this natural, n- natural nuclear reactor also created waste. And when you analyze the waste, it it's just sitting there, <laughs> you know, it's just sitting there underground. It didn't move anywhere. It didn't go up to the soil and didn't poison anything. It didn't poison anyone. It was just sitting there underground, decaying away. Um, and the other thing that is good about reprocessing and reusing the waste as energy is that you decrease the amount of time that this waste will be radioactive for. So without reprocessing, the waste is radioactive for tens of thousands of years, and with reprocessing, it goes down to something like 500 years. Hey listeners, Finn here. I should point out that we ended up recording this over two sessions, which explains the shift in sound you're about to hear. I don't know if a lot of people have seen pictures of these pools inside of reactors, um, and they, they think that if they, if they were to swim inside of the pool, they would die. <laughs> it's actually not true, even though the pellets are super radioactive, water Um, works really well at blocking radiation. So you could potentially go into the pool and and have nothing happen to you. So as they come out, they go into these pools that, you know, are inside of the reactor and they just literally sit there for a couple of years, sometimes like five years to literally cool it down because they're they're still hot. Um, 
there is no fission happening at that point, but um, there is some decay heat. So it keeps, you know, it keeps um, the temperature pretty hot. So they have to cool it down. And after it goes in the pool for a couple of years, these pellets are carried inside of this giant concrete and metal, almost like barrels. And all the water is drained off. So again, it's solid and it's dry. And then these barrels are carried somewhere. In the case of the United States, they're just carried to parking lots usually within within the nuclear power plants facility because we don't have a final repository. We don't have a, a final place to dispose of nuclear energy waste. And, you know, that's one solution, um, right? When people say, oh, we don't have a solution for nuclear waste, it's actually not true. Not only do we have a solution, we have several different ones. One of the solutions is to just leave the waste inside of this these barrels and let it decay away. But, you know, that requires that we have people monitoring the sites and that every hundred years or so we switch the, the concrete cask because it starts deteriorating. Um, but that's, you know, a solution. And just to be clear, that's what's happening to most waste in, for instance, the United States nowadays. Yes. It just gets left yes. in these containers. Yes, because there is no final repository. The United States was supposed to build a final repository meaning just like dig a pretty deep hole and put the waste in there and let it decay. But, you know, it got, it, it, it turned into a mess. It was supposed to be um, Yucca, Yucca Mountain and there was just a lot of protest. The community didn't want to host it. And some, some experts say the rock formations are not even, you know, suitable for, for this waste. You know, it, it, it is not moving forward and I don't think it will. So so the government is looking into possibly looking at another place. But but the thing is that they cannot do anything with the waste until Yucca Mountain or something like it is built. And so for now, the waste is just sitting at, at the nuclear power plants. And there, the, people have some concerns with terrorist attacks and stuff like that. But the truth is there, there are videos of this casks being tested <laughs> it's actually crazy they 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 would test the casks having a train hit against it or like drop it from thousands of meters off the ground and just let it fall and they're pretty indestructible and that's how things are being done nowadays what's the ideal case so what does good nuclear waste management look like yeah so so there are other possibilities. Some of them are being built right now. Some of them are in the works and some of them are theoretically possible, but we, we haven't done yet, um, again, in the US. So in places like France, which you know gets 70% of their electricity from nuclear, they reprocess that waste and they reuse it to fuel their power plants. And what they, they end up with is an incredibly, incredibly small amount of waste that is vitrified, is transformed into like a glass uh, material. And it's put underground again to just let it decay. And whenever the waste is aggressively recycled like that in about, I think it's like 200 or 300 years, that's, that waste would decay to normal levels of radioactivity. So it wouldn't be damaging to anyone. So that's one thing that we can do in places like the United States, just build this, what are called advanced reactors that can use um, nuclear waste as fuel. And then the other solution is to just dig a really deep hole and 
again, bury it and let it decay. And the hole is, is pretty small. I think it's something like 18 to 20 centimeters in diameter. And so you just dig very deep. You let, you put the waste in there and then you close that, that hole. So you don't have to actually build a facility underground. It's just digging the hole, putting it there and then sealing it off. So nobody has access to it. So yeah, those, those are the solutions. So this, this idea that we do not have technical solutions is, is misguided. We should, we have to just make a decision and, and build either this, you know, underground facilities or just the, the holes and, and leave it there or you know, just use it, just reprocess and use it as fuel again. I find like thinking about these long-term solutions really interesting. And there seems to be an important distinction between, as you rightfully said, um, there being technical solutions. And on the other hand, there also being political obstacles. One thing I wanted to touch on is when you mentioned this like Yucca Mountain uh, example, is that this was a project, you know, that I think basically goes back to the 1980s. And since then, um, has faced various obstacles and uh, challenges, um, be they right or wrong. Um, but really, it's been like in the political pipeline for almost or over 40 years now, with very little having happened. And it really does make you think, I guess, especially in the US in this case, yeah, like like getting the, the will or the political coalitions ready to, to at least get some solution. Yes, well, it's really challenging because it's it's nuclear, right? It's nuclear waste, so it has a lot of baggage. It also, the way it was done in the beginning, you know, the government didn't really um, get the community's approval and consent. So you can imagine how upset a community would be if they just, if the government just informed you that they're building a repository to bury nuclear waste in your backyard. And there's a lot of indigenous issues as well. The location is you know, in native lands. And so there's a lot of environmental justice issues. I would, you know, I would say it's a very, very politically complicated topic. And and just for comparison, because I think it's also important, right? Nuclear energy doesn't exist in a vacuum. Nuclear energy produces this waste, but so does every other form of energy. Fossil fuels produce a lot of waste and we know they they kill at least 5 million people every single year just from, from air pollution. And on top of it, the, the waste from fossil fuels is causing climate change, which will, will kill many more people and cause you know, a lot of human suffering and, and damages. So nuclear waste is a lot better than fossil fuel waste, um, objectively speaking. And then when you look at renewables, they don't create waste in the same sense that nuclear does because it doesn't use fuel, but the the solar panels and the wind turbines themselves and, you know, eventually the batteries, they're also waste. And it's waste that we have technical solutions. Of course, we could recycle some, some components. Um, wind turbines, the existing wind turbines are not recyclable, the blades at least. Um, so for now, they're being thrown in landfills. Um, there's concerns around solar panels as well, not being recycled or not being collected and put somewhere. Um, so I think it's important for us to talk about waste for every form of, of energy production because they all have their own you know, issues and challenges. And we should be thinking about them now before 
we create a bigger problem in the future. I think a good example of that is, you know, plastic waste. It's something that we didn't really think about. We created recycling, but it doesn't actually work. Nobody's really in charge of it. You know, nobody, it's not government mandated that we recycle. Nobody's collecting the plastic. And so it just ends up in the ocean or somewhere. So I think we should be thinking about government mandates to also collect and dispose of or recycle renewable energy materials as well, like solar panels and wind turbines. I don't know if you've had like a chance to look at some of the like uh, long-time nuclear waste warning messages. It's a bit of like a, a crazy idea, but it's thinking that if, you know, we're, we're keeping this radioactive waste somewhere for 10,000 years, we have no idea what society or the future will look like there, but we'll presumably want to have some sort of messages that still make it very clear that, that people shouldn't be, shouldn't be touching this stuff. And there's, it's definitely like a, a Wikipedia rabbit hole, but it's, it's a very fun thing to think of some of the solutions that people have, have thought about. It's almost like trying to get in touch with aliens or something or trying to communicate with them. And unfortunately, it's almost comic because the wording they chose was very bizarre. It's things like, nothing nothing good is celebrated here kind of like cryptic but weird and odd messages that would just make people more curious in my opinion yeah it's like the waiter telling you not to touch the plate because it's too hot or something like, right, I 100% like, just dig straight down right exactly you would die but no it's saying like we don't do anything positive over here and it's just like weird and cryptic i don't understand what the reasoning was but it's almost like whenever archaeologists found the tombs of, of pharaohs they were they were reading the cryptic messages and they were just more curious right it feels it feels a little bit the same way one one small thing i was going to mention which is like my my favorite kind of sci-fi solution out there is this idea to create like a sort of religion or i think it's called like atomic priesthood out there because when you look at like messages that have managed to stand the test of time religion is like one of the really good ones and i think there was some linguist also who wanted to create this kind of religion around atomic energy as a way to kind of either create these myths or like superstitions or something i just thought it's, right. a, it's a very funny idea that's so interesting i had i had not heard of it i i hope they're just wanting to do a religion against nuclear waste not energy <laughs> itself but i would be curious to to read more about this crazy solution it sounds right up my alley <laughs> it is mad and this story of the environmental movement's attitude to nuclear power i agree is just kind of very convoluted and quite sad in that there were some reasonable concerns in the wake of uh, the development of the bomb and then some kind of increasingly bad science trying to make these very strong connections between the bomb and nuclear power and then there's just this kind of cultural hangover or something where there was enough evidence to be quite confident that the power was more or less safe and just overwhelmingly positive for the world um, but those attitudes kind of lagged and it makes me wonder how common that is just like beyond nuclear like how many of the of our like attitudes are just kind of hangovers right and remember the people are very very resistant to new technologies um, it takes a couple of generations usually for the technology to be around for people to see oh okay it's fine but in the case of nuclear i think it's it's really complicated because the world was introduced to nuclear through nuclear weapons it started with nuclear weapons testing in the pacific and it was, I mean, what the United States did there was just awful. You know, they lied to the communities that, you know, they were just going to be away from their homes for a couple of days while they conducted some testing. 
and they bombarded a ton of islands like the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. And basically people couldn't go back to their homes. Some of them did and were exposed to high levels of radiation. And then they kind of created something to contain the nuclear weapons waste, which is different than nuclear energy waste because it's liquid. So it's actually harder to contain. And so then we have, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and it's impossible. It's very, very hard to disentangle that history from nuclear energy because the science behind it is similar. And even the labs that worked on it, you know, eventually merged into creating nuclear energy. Yeah, I want to string some words together and maybe this will make some sense. But hearing you talk about attitudes to waste and then just early attitudes to nuclear power in general, there's this kind of pattern or something which looks a bit like what gets called this precautionary principle. And it's um, something which sounds good on the face of it. It's something like an aversion to new or novel kinds of risks. You hear it a lot in the context of uh, COVID and new vaccines, for instance. And the idea is we have these risks we know or these dangers we know, and then we have these potential kind of responses to them, but they involve kind of unknown unknowns or unknown risks. And, and for instance, in the case of waste management, right, we have like, like you said, we have these new technologies for waste disposal. And then we have the default, which isn't terrible, but it could be improved on. And people don't like the new proposals because they're kind of maybe they feel a bit unknown. But what happens there is you just get stuck with the familiar risk. But that familiar risk is almost always actually worse than the than the new thing. And it's the same with energy. There's the familiar thing, which is burning fossil fuels. And maybe it doesn't feel so bad because it's so familiar, because it's so well known. And the new thing is better, but less well known. You kind of get this slight distortion or bias, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. That's exactly that. And on top of that, technology has just gotten more complex. And so when you try to explain to people what the technology does, you know, it, it, it just gets lost. It just sounds too complicated. It just sounds scary and unknown. And a lot of people are wary of not having long-term studies conducted. Um, as you said, in the case of COVID, there's a lot of that. And I think that's absolutely a bias and it's one that I truly don't know how to overcome because of the level of com complexity is not like putting out more information might be helpful. So it's more about, like I said, unfortunately, waiting for a couple of generations to live with the technology, which is exactly what ha what's happening with nuclear power, by the way. You know, the, the main people who are still absolutely against it, those are usually older. Those are usually folks who, you know, again, grew up with the fear of nuclear war. These are people who did drills in their classroom to you know, find a basement in the case a nuclear weapon was, was launched. So I don't, I don't see myself or anybody else convincing them because it's just too entrenched. But the younger generations, like people our, our age and younger, we don't have that, like, that gut reaction to it. And we're looking at this pr problem of climate change with fresh eyes and, and very, in a very pragmatic way. And we're saying, wait a second, <laughs> why are we shutting down these nuclear power plants again? Like they make a ton of electricity without any emissions and they're being replaced by gas because we don't have, we haven't deployed renewables at scale yet. That doesn't make any sense. 
So what you really see here is a generational divide. And I think it speaks to this, to this precautionary tale, you know, to this bias against new technologies. Yeah. And when we're thinking about drawing parallels here between nuclear energy and COVID, one thing that really jumps to my mind is the importance of public trust, especially as a way to turn technical feasibilities into political realities. And I guess with with, with COVID, you've got a lot of mistrust in the US population about vaccination schemes, and uh, especially amongst people of colour. Um, there were like lots of headlines around this, and this can kind of refer back, right, to um, things that the U.S. government has done in the past, such as the Tuskegee experiments, where they really undermine the public trust, which is now really hurting them when they do have evidence and a good moral reason to to be doing these things. Now, um, that was really undermined by mistakes that they made in the past. And similarly, we can think about nuclear energy being kind of the same. And you mentioned the the Yucca Mountains before, right? And there's definitely a parallel here where you've got this Native American community that has a very different impression um, of the US government and lots of reasons to, to mistrust it. Well, they wouldn't want uh, the government to suddenly build a, a long-term nuclear waste facility there. Um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing to kind of think about the importance of public trust and really making sure, I guess, that you're getting things right, not just in the case now, but really setting a precedence and, and building that trust for, for future cases too. And it's honestly, it's totally fair. I think that you, you hit the nail on the head there in terms, especially in terms of Yaka Mountain, because Navajo Nation, you know, one of the biggest tribes in the United States, they were severely damaged by the nuclear industry, not the nuclear energy industry as much, but the nuclear weapons industry. So whenever, you know, the, the demand for uranium increased, they started, they started um, mining for it in Navajo Nation which is basically the biggest reserve of uranium in the United States. And at the time, they really didn't know what they were doing. So they were mining without the proper safety systems and ventilation. And people got really sick. People got cancer. And and then not only that, they then abandoned a bunch of uranium mines. And one of these mines breached and got into a water system, which then contaminated the water and a lot of people drank from it. On top of it, a lot of people built their homes with rocks that were highly radioactive. And this is still an unresolved issue. So there are hundreds of abandoned uranium mines in Navajo Nation right now. And, you know, it's still still a problem. The government now has announced that it will put some money towards, towards cleaning up the sites. So how do you expect this community to want to host now nuclear waste? No, of course they won't want to, and they shouldn't. The the, the suffering that they, they've gone through is, is horrifying. And I think a lot of people in the nuclear community, in the nuclear energy community, are, are pushing for the cleanup of these sites because we understand that this is just unacceptable. Um, and, then, and then on top of it, there are things like, you know, the Fukushima water release, which... If you ask the scientists, you say, okay, what are the risks of dumping this water into the ocean? You know, scientists can never say there's absolutely zero risk (laughs) because they're very precise in their language. But they'll tell you the risk is really, really, really small because the water will be processed and all the radioactive stuff will be taken out. The only thing left in it will be tritium. And tritium has never harmed anyone that we know of like in, in nature. 
tritium occurs everywhere. The sun is dumping it on us all day, every day. And if the government cleans up the water to the level they're promising they, they will, the, the amount of tritium in that water will be less than the amount of tritium allowed on like Japanese tap water. Um, because again, tritium is everywhere. And, you know, if you compare it to things like hot springs, you know, hot springs are radioactive. That's, that's why they're hot. <laughs> the water is hot. Like the, that water from Fukushima would be around four times less radioactive than the water in an average hot spring. But again, I don't think people distrust the scientists. They distrust the government. They, they say, well, what if the government doesn't clean it up to, to those levels? You know, what if they leave some, some things behind? And the Japanese government has made statements in the past that were proven then to be incorrect. You know, they, they once claimed they had cleaned up the water, and, but they hadn't. And so these kind of things, they, they're really not helpful. And it makes people really distrust you know, all, all sorts of technology. And even in the case of COVID, I mean, in the beginning, you had the CDC telling people to not wear masks, <laughs> you know, because masks wouldn't prevent the spread of the disease. And it's like, what? Everybody know, like, why do doctors wear masks then? These are, these are things that are just kind of common sense. And when you have big institutions and governments saying these things, it, it causes a high level of, of skepticism. And that, to be honest, I don't know how to solve for <laughs> Yeah, this is actually something that I hadn't really considered before, right? But it's very easy to think about all the benefits of uh, nuclear power or whatever other promising technology it is in the abstract. But it's never just the idea of nuclear power. It's never just the technology. It's the technology that's being implemented and rolled out and regulated and governed by a government or just by people. <laughs> and you can't do that without the trust in the first place. There's this kind of ordering thing. Right. I think another thing, and, and this is kind of a prediction, which is I can see a future where a lot of the environmental community will also turn on renewable energy because a lot of people have this idea that, oh, you know, the sun and the wind and we're going to build these power plants and wind turbines and they're going to be perfect and we're never going to have to deal with problems from them. And we're going to have, you know, free sunshine forever. They fail to understand that solar panels and wind turbines are very complex technologies that come with their own downsides, right? You need a lot of rare earth materials. You need, you know, a lot of lithium for batteries. The, the amount of mining that will take place in the next coming decades just to provide the supply of materials necessary for, you know, the, this like so-called clean energy revolution is obscene <laughs> and it, it will come with it with its own downsides i don't know what they are you know there are issues already in latin america with lithium and and native communities as well and then if you add you know on top of it the fact that because renewables are energy dilute they need a lot more land than something not like nuclear you will have a lot of public opposition as well to these massive, you know, solar farms or massive wind farms. And same with transmission lines, because again, with renewables, you need to build a lot more new transmission lines because, you know, you, you can put solar panels wherever in the country or the state they make sense, but then you need to connect them to the grid somehow. So you need to build all these new transmission lines, which are, again, huge projects, right? So I think that... Uh, we're kind of underestimating um, the public backlash against 
renewable energy as well in the upcoming decades. Yeah, this is kind of world view maybe that you occasionally see where some new promising tech comes along and there's some band of proponents that become convinced it can solve every problem it promises to solve and everything's great and I can't think of a single case where that's just been unequivocally true right so like technology solves loads of problems and almost always brings some of its own problems too and then some of those problems get solved in the future by newer technology and just everything is a trade-off like everything has pros and cons and it's just so easy to yeah get involved with like overhyping something and then you get like you mentioned these kind of pendulum swings of backlash and hype and it's just a lot harder and a lot less kind of fun and sexy to really pay attention to the the details to the like potential costs of these kind of exciting new text and then to say things like on balance or all things considered this thing is going to be very good rather than this thing solves everything yeah i kind of i kind of think that the best the better approach is to just say everything sucks <laughs> just some things suck less than other things <laughs> you know like civilization kind of sucks but you know lack of was kind of worse you know people died a lot younger and they didn't have access to water readily or food and, you know, nuclear energy and renewables kind of suck. They all come with their own issues, but they suck less than fossil fuels. So the goal is to just move from things that suck more to things that suck less until eventually we can, you know, hopefully get to a place where everything sucks a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, was, that was not very intellectual. Or <laughs> it's very eloquent. Uh, let's talk about something else which could... Uh, suck less certainly than fossil fuels which is fusion uh, and we've been talking about fission of course yeah how are you thinking about fusion do you think about it when you talk about nuclear or really are you just thinking about fission right now will, will it solve all our problems will it be the solution to everything <laughs> yeah. is this the one is, guys everything else was not the thing but let me tell you about fusion <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very religious by the way it's like it's almost like people keep falling over and over for the silver bullet, right? There's always someone that comes and says, I got you. I have all of the solutions. And now um, it's fusion. Yeah. Now, now it's fusion. <laughs> fusion is the new Jesus. <laughs> Get some t-shirts made. That's the, the, the atomic priesthood, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I don't. I obviously don't think you would solve all the problems, although it is very, very alluring, right? Because you could have potentially like infinite energy, um, with very little or no waste and without the risk of a meltdown or something like that, which, which you have with, with fission. Um, I, to, to be honest, I got interested in nuclear and my, you know, my first curiosity was molten salt thorium reactors because Carolyn Porco tweeted about it. But then I very quickly got into fusion as well. And People in the nuclear community have this saying that you come for the thorium and you stay for the fission. <laughs> because most people, when they first hear of nuclear, they, of course, come come across these videos about, oh, the promise of molten salt thorium reactors and the, the promise of fusion reactors. And I think they're so compelling because they're technologies that don't exist yet. Because as soon as the technology exists and is deployed at scale, again, you start seeing all the issues and all the problems that come with it. So I... And all for technological innovation. I think we should be investing in, in fusion and 
some people are very skeptical that it could ever be achieved, you know, at, at scale. But, you know, people were skeptical that you could reuse a rocket. <laughs> and people were skeptical that the, the internet was going to be a thing. So I truly think there is no limit. And we go back to David Deutsch, our babe here, <laughs> all of our babe, um, in that our potential to unlock this new technologies is pretty unlimited. So I, I believe there is there will be a day, it might be 10 years from now, it might be 50 or 100 years from now, where we will be able to, to do it at scale. But for the moment, I am more concerned about fission and just and just trying to reverse public perception. Because also, I mean, these biases and these preconceived notions, they will carry on to fusion as well. Um, if they hear the word nuclear, or if they realize it has to do with nuclear, the biases will carry on as well. So I'm, I'm more concerned about that. Mm. Zooming out um, a little bit, can you maybe very briefly explain what exactly fusion is? And um, maybe as well where we're kind of standing at the moment, what the current state of the art technology is and what people might be hoping to achieve in the coming decades? Yeah, so fusion is the opposite of fission. <laughs> that was not very helpful. But so fission is basically splitting atoms to, to get the energy that's inside of the atom, which we know has a lot of energy. And fusion is the opposite of that. It's actually smashing atoms together. It, it smashes hydrogen atoms together to create energy. And it doesn't come with the wastes associated with fission energy, and it doesn't come with the meltdown risk as well. Um, but the, the complicated thing about fusion, and by the way, fusion is what our sun does. So our sun is a huge fusion reactor in the sky. And that's why Elon Musk, when he's asked about nuclear fusion, he always says, we don't need, we don't need a fusion reactor because we already have one. So in order to be able to, to get those atoms to smash and like, merge together, you actually need an incredibly high temperature, like the temperature that you have in the sun. And you need to smash these atoms at, at a very high speed as well. So that's why it's been very challenging on Earth to just achieve those you know, speeds and temperature. There are several different companies that are trying to do it using different things like laser beams and plasma and, and they are so fun to read about, incidentally. So fun to read about it. By the way, you guys must you you guys probably know more about it than I do at this point because ever since I, I realized that fission, you know, fusion is super exciting, but kind of farther down the line, I, I have dedicated all of my time to to fission. You know, fusion has been achieved on Earth, which is something that, you know, some people even doubt it could happen. So people have been able to do it, but they haven't been able to sustain it. Um what sorry, just to interrupt but i fell down this rabbit hole as well <laughs> and uh was surprised to learn that at this point it's not too difficult if you have the technical chops to build a fusion reactor in your garage with tools you can get online so that the real challenge maybe even the only challenge is reaching it's ignition. Sustaining. Yeah, right. That's right and also and also just yeah just right now the amount of energy that you put into it into fusing the atoms is actually larger than the amount of energy that you get out of it um, and precisely because I think you cannot sustain the reaction. But yes, it's. I think there was a kid named Wilson Taylor or something like that who created a fusion reactor in his garage when he was 15. <laughs> so 
So, I mean, that's, you know, he's a genius. He's not like an average. He was, me at 15, <laughs> I was playing with Barbies. He's like making a fusion reactor in his But there garage. are YouTube tutorials now. This is just like common knowledge, it turns out. <laughs> right, exactly. There's, there's a new nuclear fusion influencer and she te- teaches you how to buy stuff on Target and build your own at home. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, maybe, but maybe there should be. Maybe that's my next step. <laughs> Um, yeah, but it's it's super exciting stuff, and I'm all for for investing in that. I'm so, I'm also for investing in enhanced geothermal, which is another source of you know clean and reliable electricity or energy like nuclear, which you know traditionally geothermal has been kind of geographic dependent. So places like Iceland that have a lot of volcanic action have a lot of geothermal as well. But but places that don't, that don't have a lot of volcanic activity traditionally have not been able to tap into it. But now there are new technologies being developed that can also dig very deep underground. There's kind of like a parallel between nuclear waste and these types of technology, actually. Dig very extremely deep and tap into into the Earth's, you know, heat, into the Earth's core heat, which, by the way, also mostly comes from, from the decay of radioactive materials. So it's all nuclear energy. <laughs> I think we 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 don't really get to be picky about what technologies we want to invest in and we should be you know exploring all these different possibilities. Mm. Yeah, there there does it does strike me that there seems to be some meta point of just taking lots of different bets and especially if as you mentioned any technology at scale will have lots of big problems it makes sense to try and aim for a portfolio anyway and then it becomes maybe more of a balancing act between things rather than ignoring anything or investing completely in into any single technology right it it also it also depends on your goal i think a lot of the a lot of these agreements also come down to people have different goals um like again in the case of elon musk he's his goal is not I don't think his goal is decarbonization as much as it is to move civilization towards a renewable source of energy. And so that's why I, don't, I think he doesn't focus that much on nuclear. If your goal is to solve climate change and you know create electricity without emissions, then nuclear makes makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people, you know, that are leading the narrative around climate change and environmental issues, they also have the goal of just getting to 100% renewable energy. That's why I don't, they do rarely include nuclear. I think that's it's slightly mi- misguided for a couple of reasons. So while the sun and the wind will blow until the sun explodes and everything in our solar system dies. But the materials that make solar panels and, and wind turbines and batteries are not renewable, right? They're finite. And in the case of nuclear, um, if we are able... I mean, there's uranium in the ocean's water and there is a way to mine it from the ocean uh, it's just not it's just expensive at the moment but if we are to recycle all the existing nuclear waste mine on earth and also mine in the ocean nuclear energy basically becomes renewable at that point because we would have enough uranium to last for thousands of years one last kind of criticism I've, I've heard about nuclear energy is this kind of like link to, to nuclear weapons. So we mentioned how these are like two different things um, kind of inherently, but they are also linked in some ways, right? Um, nuclear energy doesn't just produce radioactive wastes. It also produces 
uh, like plutonium, or I guess that is a type of radioactive waste, but it has this special characteristic that it gets used for, for nuclear weapons. And, and some concern is that if you spread uh, nuclear energy out, especially to a lot of new countries, these countries can then also be using um, their nuclear energy programs to produce nuclear weapons. And if you're really concerned about this, then whether you think... Um, nuclear energy is good or not on its own merits. You might just be worried that much about proliferation um, that you kind of conclude against it. Yeah, so it's. I think it's a valid concern. And I think it has been overblown because if we look at the history of nuclear power plants, we don't, we don't see an, a correlation in the increase of nuclear weapons proliferation after an increase in nuclear energy consumption, right? So it is, it is a concern, definitely, but it's something that is has a lot of safeguards around. Um, so, you know, anytime a country wants to start a nuclear power program, they have to go through, you know, a long list of regulations and, and then they're watched very, very closely. And all the radioactive and fissile material is inspected a thousand times and it's measured and weighted. And, you know, fissile material doesn't just move around easily. And what I've even heard is that in some cases it's better if a country decides to have a nuclear power program because then you have all these people on the ground that are actually watching it really closely. So if they try to do something shady, like create nuclear weapons, you can actually stop them from doing. And these arguments you know, came from people who, are, who work in the industry and who work in non-proliferation. And the other thing is that most of the risk of of bad actors getting their hands in, in radioactive material comes from the processing plants. So it comes from the beginning, before you get to the uranium pellets. And, and that is only reserved for certain countries. Like, you know, if you, if you open a power plant in the Middle East, let's say, they wouldn't have a, a, process, a reprocessing facility or an enriching facility. They would only get the, the fuel already ready to go. And there doesn't seem to be that much of a risk with the fuel and the after, you know, and the waste in itself. It's more about the enrichment. Yeah, yeah. Look, at some point, we need to mention the fact that you are the uh, world's first and only nuclear power influencer. <laughs> Um, you obviously mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I do want to talk about the story behind this isodope character. So I don't know what the question is here. Maybe just something like, how did that come about? Like, where did the idea come from? Yeah, so I came to the United States to be a fashion model and I worked as that for, for long. I still do work as, it, you know, that's my day job. And the end of 2019... I was very, very down with all the Australia and Amazon fires. And I remember just feeling really compelled to do something with my platform um, to help somehow solve the issue of climate change. I didn't know what it was, but I just felt this, you know, this need. And as I started reading into what it would take and what the solutions were, of course, nuclear power came again as, as one of them. And and one day out of the blue, I just, I just, decided, you know, what if I become a nuclear energy influencer? And of course that sounds ridiculous and, and so silly, but that's the whole point, right? Um, if I just said I was a nuclear energy advocate, people wouldn't pay too much attention. <laughs> so the whole idea is, okay, you know, I obviously have a platform from this, you know, from the fashion world and the algorithm seems to favor me for whatever reasons. So 
why don't I try to hack social media and the algorithm and create a type of content that people want to consume, but that's actually talking about something important, which is in this context, obviously, using nuclear energy to solve climate change. So the whole idea was to, you know, just really create influencer type of content, like makeup tutorials and what I eat in a day videos and like workout videos, and then merge into talking about nuclear power. And it, you know, I think it's been, it's been quite successful. It, it really hooks people who otherwise would never think about nuclear energy or sometimes even climate change. And it, at least makes them curious enough to do their their own research. Yeah, well, I just think it's completely amazing. And I think there are probably few people in the world who would think of that idea in the first place and then follow through and make it happen. But some might say it's a weird thing to be doing and you have friends and presumably and no agents and whatever. How do they react when you tell them you're a nuclear power influencer? <laughs> Not very well. I think the people were. <laughs> I think people were very confused in the beginning. The, there were just a lot of question marks, and and even to this day, right? I think my content is very specific and a little weird, like you said. But to be honest, the weirdness of it is what I believe makes it work. It if it wasn't weird, people wouldn't pay too much attention. So the whole thing is maximizing eyeballs. <laughs> so the whole idea behind the character and the whole idea behind the tone of voice and the, the graphs that I use in the back and everything that I do in my videos is to maximize the amount of eyeballs I'm going to get into my content so we can talk about this very important topic. But, you know, just to answer your question, they, they're still confused, I think, and some of them think I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious what the feedback's been like from people watching these videos do you have an impression you're changing anyone's minds or like getting people interested in this stuff i don't think i'll ever convince the super anti-nuclear like 60s hippies who you know, grew up with the fear of nuclear war but that's fine that's not who i'm trying to convince anyways i'm trying to convince my generation and and younger who are the people who are invested in the future of the planet and of the species so it's been really gratifying to just get people's messages saying, you've opened my eyes and now I'm so much more open. And this is something that is so complex and there's so much misinformation that I don't think it's a, it's a quick process. People probably come to my content and they open up their minds a little bit and they do a little bit more research. So it's, I think it's a little bit of a longer process to fully change their minds. But it's definitely being really gratifying. And one of the like best things that I get all the time is just people DMing me saying, keep going, what you're doing is amazing. It really helps because some days I look at myself and I say, well, you know, should I really be spending two weeks into creating a video <laughs> that is kind of weird and a little edgy? And is it really having an impact? So receiving all those kinds of messages really, really help me just keep moving forward. Yeah, fantastic. And I think I asked, oh, have you changed any minds? But maybe that wasn't the right question because maybe, you know, it's more important not to spend all this effort winning over died in the world anti-nuclear types, but instead to reach out to people who don't really know about this stuff or care about it at all yet, right? And, you know, for every one 
anti-nuclear former hippie, there's presumably a thousand people, I don't know, my age or younger, who could have some influence on the future with a career working on this stuff and who don't yet know it. And stumbling on your videos could be the catalyst, right? And just in general, it's probably more important to bring people, you know, in off the sidelines rather than just bickering with signed up members of the other team, if that makes sense. Right. And and the truth is all of my all of my content is pretty positive and just highlighting the strengths of, of nuclear energy and not dismissing other forms of technology. Precisely for that reason. I don't want to be, you know, fighting and trying to convince people who are who are fundamentally against. I just want to share the facts and let people make their own decisions. And and those are usually the undecided or people who just don't have any priors when they come into this conversation. I was going to say, I guess if, if people are listening to this podcast now and they feel motivated either to, to learn more or to actually get involved, are there any places in particular you would direct them to, um, either on the one hand to kind of learn more about this topic or on the other hand um, to actually be uh, involved in, in this kind of, I guess, uh, like grassroots movement to um, help promote nuclear energy? Yeah, so from my side, all I really want is for people to have these conversations. Uh, if they feel like they've learned something, talk about it with your family, your friends, and share it on social media. And if they want more more content and some sources, they can go to my website, um, isodope.com, and I share there my favorite podcasts and TED Talks and books and all of that. So it's just easier if they go there and, and find everything together. Yeah, I guess one question here is, you talked about the reaction from your peers. What about the reaction from the scientific community? You're like an outsider to these worlds. So what do scientists and nuclear people think about what you're doing? <laughs> A mix. Um, some were very positive and, and love what I'm doing because they know that I can reach to an audience that maybe they wouldn't be able to, right? And others think that is ridiculous that a model is talking about about their field, which I, you know, some, I kind of understand. It must be annoying that a complete stranger, an outsider, just steps in and starts talking about something that you've studied for many, many years. So it's it's a little bit of a mix. Okay, that's understandable. Now. I guess maybe there are some people listening who are content creators or they want to start doing something like what you're doing. Um, maybe not so many people set on becoming the world's second nuclear power influencer, but I'm sure they can talk to you. Uh, but maybe a question here is, what is the process behind an isodope video? Uh, just to get some impression of the crazy amount of work that goes into each video. And also, can you say something specifically about how you do fact-checking? I know you've mentioned this idea of um, talking to scientists with different perspectives and getting them to come up with shared estimates. And yeah, I would love to hear you explain how that works. Yeah, so I, mean, I guess a tip for anyone who just wants to start creating content is to just do it. <laughs> uh, we, we run into this problem of trying to be too much of a perfectionist and your video is never going to be perfect and it's never going to be good enough. So you just have to do it and, and develop a certain rhythm, which I'm kind of saying something I don't do. <laughs> I try to be more consistent with my content, but it's, it's something that's really hard to achieve, but yeah, just, just do it if you're thinking about it. And in terms of how long it takes to do my videos, it takes me about two weeks to make a one minute video. And that's when it's really good. And the reason for that is because from the moment I have the idea, I write it down and 
then I review it and then I review it. And I do that about, I don't know, 10 times before I get to a script that I'm happy with. Then I record it myself with the green screen in the back and I, I do some editing and start playing around. And usually I hate everything that's written down. And so I rewrite it and that process goes on and on. And then finally I record the final cut, which is, you know, with the face filters and the makeup and everything. And then I do the editing, which takes like anywhere from three to five days. Um, it's just a lot of editing. It's, it's a lot of pictures. And I like to make sure that it's, you know, that the frames are changing in exactly the right moment. So there is this rhythm to it and the background is aesthetically pleasing. So it just takes me a very, very long time to, to create each one of them. And, and in the fact checking aspect, I do reach out to a bunch of individuals. I mean, there's some information that are out there and very accessible and come from legitimate websites. So I end up using those, but then in some cases, like in the example that you mentioned is about waste. So I'm doing this whole series on nuclear waste, which is one of the biggest topics, obviously. And I wanted to talk about renewables waste, but there isn't too much data out there on renewables waste. So I initially had worked with a couple of different nuclear engineers to calculate the amount of solar panel waste and wind turbine waste. But of course, nuclear engineers are probably biased towards nuclear. <laughs> and I'm sure they know a lot about nuclear waste, but they wouldn't necessarily be the you know, experts in, in renewables waste. So what I did was reach out to a very prominent pro-renewables person um, on Twitter who he he's not, I wouldn't say he's anti-nuclear, but he's highly critical of nuclear and of course promotes renewable energy. So I reached out to him and asked him to take a look over the calculations and he thought they were, they were done poorly. So we then started working with him and another nuclear engineer to, to really get the, the numbers perfectly. And it, it's been, you know, a very interesting project. It's taking a long, long time because you have to schedule like different people's times and <laughs> time zones and all of that. And they disagree. And so they fight over the numbers. And, but at the end of the day, I think things like this are very important, right? We can't just make false claims and we can't just accept the data that confirms our priors. Um, we should be looking into counter arguments and we should be looking to collaborate with people who we don't necessarily agree with on everything. So it's been a very helpful exercise in, you know, following all of that. And I'm, I'm excited to just put good information out into the world. Generating original research, right? That's, that's so amazing. I, I can definitely say as well, I guess, from like trying to prepare for this episode, like if you just like try and Google like things or about nuclear energy in general, uh, you need to be very careful. I mean, there definitely is like good and accurate out information out there, but I guess because it is such an emotive topic, um, there's definitely like lots of very interesting sites and like very different estimates of, of kind of the same things as well. Very different estimates and, and a lot of craziness on both sides. <laughs> Do you feel like you're converging on some kind of agreement through this process? I think so. I think partly because of the way I'm communicating, which is, and, and I really mean this, I, 
I want renewables to be a part of the energy transition. They're cheap. We should deploy them now. We should be deploying as much renewables as we can right now. And I think that for a long, long time, the conversation around nuclear and renewables has been so polarized. And, and so you either belong to one camp or the other. What I'm trying to do is really just say, guys, we need all of it. We're, we're fighting over peanuts. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like there's some lesson here that when you're having conversations like this, and it's so much easier to say than to put into practice, obviously. But probably your motivation should just be to figure out what's true. And you can have priors and they can be strong, but you shouldn't let that shade into something that's just unresponsive to new evidence, right? Like you're not really allowed to decide that your side just has to win before you hear the other side's arguments. But easier said than done. So what you're doing is very impressive. Um, and there's a kind of segue here actually to talk maybe a bit about the environmental movement in general. And it's something you've talked a bit about in the past as well. There's a question about how easy it is and how easy it should be to change your mind on issues like nuclear energy. And there are plenty of issues like it where, you know, taking a certain stance is just bound up with this bundle of beliefs that makes up the environmentalist identity such that there is a kind of quite right and wrong view to take and sometimes that can be unhelpful because, you know, it makes it unnecessarily painful to take a different view. So uh, what's the question here? Maybe first of all, I guess, is that true? Or am I just worrying about ghosts? And then if it is true, and this is a stupidly big question, but I mean, how do you begin to change those norms and maybe make it a bit less stressful to change your mind about these big, important mm. questions? Um, that's probably not just a problem in the environmental community or movement. It's more a human problem, right? We're, we're extremely tribal. Um, we're, and also we have limited amount of time. So whenever we belong to a movement or we belong to a group of people, we take certain assumptions that they make to be the truth just because it's easier than doing all of the research ourselves. So let's say if a lot of people in the environmental movement are anti-nuclear, whoever joins the movement now will probably be anti-nuclear, not because they don't believe the science, it's because maybe they're so passionate about something else that they don't have the time to investigate nuclear energy. So they're just taking their peers' words for it. And we do it all the time, right? We all, all of us do it. It's just that It's just that we as humans have a limited amount of time to dedicate to learn the things. And so we just you know, use all these shortcuts. And we know that from cognitive biases, right? We just, we just use all these shortcuts to make assumptions about the world, even though they might be incorrect. Um, so, but the only thing we, we can hope to do is really just keep putting the correct information out, out into the world and that it will resonate with people, however long it takes. Yeah, that's right. And I guess it's a fairly endless process. Um, now, we have two more questions, which we ask all our guests. And the first one is kind of related, which is, what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? Ooh, recently, mm. in terms of more long term, like older things that I changed my mind on, obviously religion, that was a, a very big one. Um, and I think actually, whenever I changed my mind about religion, it became so much easier to change my mind about everything. <laughs> that's interesting. What do you mean right. by that? Well, because religion is such a, a big, important thing in people's minds, it kind of defines who you are in a lot of ways, especially if you grow up 
you know, with, with a certain religion in mind, like I was Catholic. And so, you know, as a Catholic, we did this certain things. We went to church on the certain days and we prayed and it, I think it largely defined who I was for a while. And once I let go of that belief, I think my definition of who I am and my sense of self and identity became much more fluid and much less tied to any specific doctrine or even even position. Like I, I, I don't feel tied to any particular position. The only thing it would be very, very hard for me to change my mind on is the belief that, you know, the scientific method is not important. <laughs> that like that's a, the hill I'll die on. <laughs> yeah, no, completely. I feel the same thing. It's like um if you tether your identity so strongly to, you know, believing that P and then you think, well, if I ever stop believing in P, I just more or less won't be me anymore. So it doesn't even make sense to stop believing in P. Exactly. And not only is it possible, I think it's preferable as you learn more and as and as the world changes as well. So can your opinion and, and your view of the world. I'm sure that 20 years from now, I'm going to look back at all the things that I'm saying now. And I'm going to be like, oh my God. Well, I really like <laughs> the idea of tying your identity to ways of coming up with new beliefs and sorting between them rather than tying your identity to particular beliefs which could turn out to be wrong right as as a process as like a way to yeah 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 to you know seek the truth yeah no fantastic okay and the second question we ask everyone is what three books would you recommend for anyone interested in finding out more about what we've talked about so i can talk about the books that changed my life you know, the most that have been the most impactful. So the first one was obviously The Greatest Show on Earth by Richard Dawkins, as I, as I mentioned before, just because it opened my eyes to science and evolution. It's it's a beautiful book and it's very well written. So I, I recommend that. Um, the second one is Our Inner Ape by Franz Zawal, which is, he's a primatologist and he kind of compares the behavior of other great apes to humans. And it's just such an interesting lens through which we can analyze ourselves because we tend to think that we're so different um, from other animals in, in our actions and, and our psychology. But when you see this, you know, other great apes carrying out activities that look very similar to us, um, I think it's, it's puts everything into context and it's just a very interesting way to, to look at ourselves and of course, the other one is The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. It's funny because everyone who who I have recommended it to writes back saying that that book literally changed their, their, their lives and changed their minds. And it's probably the reason why I'm so tied to the scientific method as a way of understanding the world is, is probably because of that book. It literally freed me from nihilism and it it is very inspiring and, and motivating. Amen. <laughs> I, I have that book unopened, unread on my bookshelf right now. So it's a good nudge to, to actually oh, read it. Oh, you have to read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dream guest. <laughs> I know, for it's all of us. Um, okay, very last question is, uh, where can people find you online or find Isodope online if they want to learn more? Yeah, so I think the best the best place right now is to just go on my website, which is www isodope.com and that's i-s-o-d-o-p-e.com and there you have my social media handles and all of that because my name is kind of complicated and long <laughs> and if i tell people now they're going to be what okay 
I said that was the last question. The real last question is, how do I pronounce your last name? <laughs> I know. So my last name is German. I am Brazilian. I don't speak German. So I'm also butchering my last name. I just want to make that clear. But the way Germans pronounce it is Bömeke. I, I say Bömeke, which is like the Brazilian version of that. In that case, Isabel Bömeke, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. That was Isabel Bemeke on decarbonisation and nuclear power. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Isabel. And there you'll find links to all the books and articles Isabel mentioned, along with some further reading. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form and there's a star rating form on each write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, hate mail, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly, you can leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening. Listener.